city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. We are living in stressful and uncertain times. Staying at home may be necessary for our overall physical health, but it can take a significant personal toll. The British medical journal, The Lancet, recently looked at the literature on the psychological effects of past quarantines and found an increase in anxiety, post-traumatic stress symptoms, confusion, and anger, often for weeks after the quarantine was over. Not surprisingly, those of us with a history of a mental health disorder are most at risk. But there are some of us whose physical and psychological well-being may be more in jeopardy at home. Domestic violence victims. China, the first country to impose lockdown measures in response to COVID-19, saw a doubling of domestic violence reports. France saw a 30% increase following the March 17th lockdown. And law enforcement agencies across the United States have seen domestic violence cases rise up to 35% in recent weeks. The United Nations has called it the shadow pandemic. Welcome to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a forensic and clinical psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's show on domestic violence under quarantine. I'd like to introduce our guest, Casey Gwynn, who is president of the San Diego-based Alliance for Hope International and former city attorney for the city of San Diego. He is most known, though, for transforming the way domestic violence cases are handled throughout the United States. I wonder if we could start out by you sharing with us a little bit about your personal story in terms of how you got involved in domestic violence cases. Well, it's been an amazing journey. I certainly didn't think that this was relevant to my life uh, growing up, though many years later I learned and realized differently. But I uh, grew up in Northern California, grew up at a camp called Mount Hermon in the Santa Cruz Mountains, went off to Stanford, then to UCLA School of Law and became a prosecutor in San Diego 35 years ago, very near the time that Abraham Lincoln was president of the United (laughs) States. And the day that everybody picked their area of interest, the very first week I began as a prosecutor, I was sick that Friday. And I came back to work the following Monday, and the only area that had not been picked was domestic violence. That's how I became San Diego's first domestic violence prosecutor. So you kind of got the short straw. <laughs> at least it must have seemed like it at the time. Well, it, it did. And even though uh, I didn't come to this uh, from a feminist standpoint, I did come at it from the standpoint initially that it just seemed wrong to me that there would be violence in intimate relationships and that uh Primarily men would use violence to manipulate and control and abuse human beings, particularly women in intimate relationships. It just seemed this is wrong. They shouldn't get away with this. And at the very beginning of my career, if victims weren't willing to press charges and literally sign the criminal complaint in San Diego, nobody ever got prosecuted. And the only question to the victim was, will you press charges? And if she said no, those cases just went away by the thousands. They just disappeared. And at the beginning of that journey, 35 years ago, San Diego in 1985 had 30 domestic violence homicides in one year. 
It was 28% that year of all the homicides in San Diego were domestic violence related. So perpetrators were getting away with it. Victims, of course, weren't in a position to try to hold their perpetrators accountable or say they wanted to press charges, especially in a system that was so dysfunctional. And the violence would accelerate and continue, and eventually women would die. And I'm trying to think of other felonies where the onus of pressing charges is on the victim. Nobody ever asked the victim of a drunk driver, do you want to press charges against the drunk driver for crashing into you? Nobody ever asks a gang member in a drive-by shooting, uh, do you want to press charges against the gang member that shot you and from some rival gang? The only area where this has been true and continues to be true for other complicated reasons is in sexual assault cases. In sexual assault, historically, it has been up to the sexual assault victim to decide whether or not she wants to go forward with the case. And that's true to this very day for complicated reasons around privacy rights, about a woman's choice, about the ability to control your body, which becomes a crime scene in a sexual assault case. I mean, complicated issues in sexual assault cases. But in domestic violence, like in most other crimes, we don't generally today put the onus on the victim. We say, is this a crime? Uh, we can let the survivor choose. Do you want to testify? Do you want to participate? But to let the, the victim be the one to decide, you're talking about a power and control relationship. So you've got this abuser above the victim. And now you're saying to the victim who's in this less than position being manipulated, controlled, abused, do you want to press charges against the person controlling you? I mean, that's just idiotic. It certainly seems risky, for sure. If you have somebody who's already terrified in a relationship, and for good reason, and then you're asking this person, do you want to actively go after somebody who you don't know what the outcome's going to be? And yeah, so, so in, you're yeah, putting exactly. yourself essentially more at risk, it would seem. So in those early years, it was probably somewhat arrogance more than it was a moral conviction. But I went to law school to become a lawyer to make decisions as a prosecutor now whether or not somebody should be prosecuted for a crime. Do I have the evidence? Can I prove it? Is their conduct heinous? Is it criminal? And should they have to face consequences for the choices they made? So I just came to it from that basic standpoint. And early on, I remember saying to survivors that I was talking to, you know, I know you, you say you don't want to press charges, but would you like him to be held accountable for what he did to you? Would you like him to stop his violence? And she would say, of course, yes, but I don't want to be the one to do it. And I would say, it's okay. That's my job. I, I, I get paid to actually do this. I get paid to hold people accountable who commit crimes against other human beings. And so you can choose whether or not to participate. I want you to do whatever you think you need to do to be safe and to be able to make decisions that protect you and your children. But he is going to have to answer for what he did to you because he made choices that are a violation of the law. And it's a crime not just against you, but against the state. You know, I love the fact that you've been around the block for a number of years, as you said. And I also have been around the block for a number of years. And I remember many, many years ago, my first job out of graduate school was working with abuse victims. And that was sexual abuse victims, children, physical abuse, and domestic violence as well. Mm. And I oftentimes would hear that it's a personal problem or it's a relationship problem. And I also recall a time when there was a woman who was working in a nursery school and her ex-husband was coming to work and was threatening her. And the response from the educators was to, to terminate 
the, mm. the woman. And, you know, as a mom, I understand you don't want your you know, children to be at risk. But I, I, at the same time, this is a woman who's a victim. She's not looking to put anybody in danger. And so I wonder how that, if it has changed over the, over the course of your career. It certainly took us many years to begin to address that. And obviously now we've got laws in a lot of states, including California, that make it illegal to terminate someone for being a victim of domestic violence and provide protections to them in the workforce situation, including workplace protection orders that can be put in place, ordering offenders to stay away from the victim's workplace. Obviously, the victim's ability to get a protection order for herself or for her children. So we've come a long way since those early early years, but we used to see victims getting kicked out of housing. They'd be in an apartment. He would trash the apartment and then she would get evicted. That too is now against the law in California. And so we have slowly changed some of those provisions in the law. And as you said, Joni, it certainly makes sense. You know, we don't want, if we don't want these kids in our school, we don't want this woman in our workplace. If, if somebody's coming after her, I understand that, but the policy uh, position should be, we're going to hold this person accountable. We're going to stop this violence. And you have a right to work. You have a right to be safe. Your children have a right to be safe. And we're going to do what we can to protect you using the power of the law. So we still have a ways to go. There are certainly still these issues that are coming up even now in this pandemic. But we have come a long ways in saying, one, people that choose to use violence against other human beings need to be held accountable for that civilly and criminally. Uh, and two, those who experience violence and abuse deserve protection and people have a right to live their lives and make their own choices in their lives without being manipulated, abused, controlled by another human being. Well, you know, the other thing that pops in my mind, and I've heard you talk in, in a couple of different areas, and I think it's such an important point, is the fact that somebody who is a batterer over and over again, this is a pattern of behavior, is also at risk of other forms of violence. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's this perception that somehow if somebody's being violent or if there's conflict in an intimate relationship, that somehow that doesn't have any impact anywhere else in the culture or in society. In fact, when we see cases happen, particularly murder-suicides or domestic violence homicides, law enforcement will sometimes say there's no threat to public safety from this, as if it's only about these two people, so we don't really have to worry about anything else. And nothing, of course, could be further from the truth. We have been doing research at Alliance for Hope International for about 10 years now, and we have now definitively shown the relationship between men who abuse women and men who kill police officers in America, and specifically men who strangle or suffocate women. So the most lethal domestic violence abusers in this country are stranglers. They're men who apply pressure to a woman's neck who, during an assault, will either try to suffocate her or strangle her, literally put their hands around her neck or an arm across her neck or some type of, of violent conduct that puts pressure on the neck. Those men, the stranglers of America, are the cop killers of America. Uh, we've also tracked the relationship between stranglers and domestic violence perpetrators and mass shooters. The majority of all mass shooters in the United States are those who are perpetrators of domestic violence. And then when you track their history after a mass shooting, sure enough, you see 
they have usually an extended history of violence against women. I know you do a lot of training with law enforcement. So what are the implications for law enforcement around domestic violence in terms of in responding, for example, to a domestic violence call? What should law enforcement professionals know and what should they be asking? Well, there are so many things, but the number one message we're sending today to law enforcement is when you hear the words domestic violence or you're being called out on a domestic violence call, you should be thinking officer safety immediately, not just victim safety, but officer safety, because these guys are the most dangerous men on the planet. When you're a law enforcement officer and you're responding to somebody's home, you have no idea what you're walking into. You have no idea whether there are weapons in that home. The manipulative abuser may seem actually calm and almost self-regulated by the time police officers arrive. He has attacked his partner. His blood pressure may well have gone down in the middle of this assault. And now the police show up and she's all agitated and angry and upset. And he seems fairly calm. And he said, look at her. She's crazy. She attacked me. She did this. She did that. Experienced abusers always say self-defense. That's always the go-to for experienced domestic violence offenders when police officers arrive. So figuring out all of those issues, officer safety, victim safety, children's safety is top of the list. And then obviously this whole journey of figuring out what's the real evidence in this case. I'm still amazed all over America how seldom officers just walk next door and talk to the neighbors in any domestic violence call. The neighbors always know what's going on. Uh, I don't care whether you're in an apartment or a single family home. The neighbors have some sense most of the time if there's violence and abuse going on. And if they don't know about the abuse, they do know to say, well, you know, they seem like a nice family, but they really keep to themselves. Well, that in itself is a piece of evidence in a domestic violence case. He's isolating her, he's isolating the kids. And that itself lays the foundation for an investigation into what's going on behind closed doors. The number one we train officers on philosophically is when you show up at the scene of a domestic violence incident, assume that the victim is not going to be in a position emotionally, psychologically, uh, to testify six months later in court. So if that's true, how are you going to prove this case six months from now when it goes to court? And the answer is you have to look for other evidence besides just the victim's statement or the victim's testimony. And today across America, so many officers just depend on what the victim says at the scene of the crime. And a victim is so likely to recant that story within 24, 48 hours, maybe maybe a week. Uh, because she's dealing with his manipulation, his intimidation, his threats, his abuse. And, and she's trying to navigate staying alive, economic livelihood, how to provide for herself and her kids. So officers have to build these cases, assuming that the victim is not going to be able to testify in court. And then if she is able to, great, we've got a much stronger case. We've got all the other evidence officers look for, and we've got the victim's statement. You know, it's interesting you were talking about the fact that sometimes when police officers should go out, the alleged batterer is calm and, and it may be the victim who's more agitated. And I was reading just over the past 24 hours about a case in San Marcos, Texas, where three officers were responding to a domestic violence call. And it's exactly what you described. They went in, This the guy, unbeknownst to law enforcement, had on a, an armored vest and shot and killed one of the police officers and seriously wounded the other two. And I think caught them completely by surprise. So it yeah. is, I think, just another testament to the fact that you don't know what you're walking into. 
when you get one of these cases. How much information is gathered? How much information should be gathered? I'm hearing you say a lot more than, than typically is. And then what should that person you know, know and review before they go out to respond to that call? Well, we always push hard for more information to be provided to officers rather than less. We had a California Highway Patrol officer, as an example, uh, killed last year on Interstate 15. Andre uh, was up on Interstate 15 north of the 10 in Los Angeles. He pulled a truck over for being in the carpool lane with one person in the vehicle. That's what started the stop. He pulls the truck over. He uh, goes up, contacts the driver. He runs the plates. He finds out that registration is expired. He then finds out that the driver does not have a valid driver's license. And so he says to the guy, you know, I'm so sorry, but I'm probably going to have to impound your car because you're not supposed to be driving and uh, plates are expired. And the guy says, no problem. I'll call my wife and uh, let me just get my stuff out of the back of the truck. He goes to the back of the truck while the officer has walked back to his motorcycle to call for a tow truck. And he pulls out an internet made AR-15 that's in the bed of that pickup truck. And he opens fire on Officer Andre Moy, kills him. hundred shots are fired in the shootout. Andre returns fire, but uh, he ends up dying. What Andre did not know that day is he was pulling over a convicted felon who had a history of domestic violence, including an attempted murder case that had sent him to prison, and he was now out on parole. He didn't know any of that. It was a traffic stop, and when a CHP officer calls in a traffic stop, he doesn't get any information about the offender, and of course, he was a strangler of women, and he didn't have that information, so Andre was dealing with that stop with all kinds of information that he should have had that he did not have. So we're now pushing hard, whether it's a traffic stop, whether it's a domestic violence call, whatever it is, officers should have a right to know who are they dealing with and what's the criminal history and what information can be provided. In fact, we just passed a law in California that became effective last January that requires law enforcement now to make a notation in a file if somebody has been accused of a strangulation assault, because we know stranglers are more dangerous than any other domestic violence perpetrators. You know, so we you mentioned we're going to take a quick break. This is Dr. Joni Johnson. Our guest today is Casey Gwynn, and our topic today is domestic violence under quarantine. We'll be right back. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, as we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. We are a grassroots movement of patriots, blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. Our topic today is domestic violence under quarantine, and our guest is attorney Casey Quinn. You mentioned that several times about the, tra- the strangling or the choking, and I think most people would assume that if a domestic violence victim has been choked or strangled, you would see it. 
Yeah, we published the first six major articles on non-fatal strangulation in the Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2001. And in all six of our articles, we were able to document, looking at 300 cases in San Diego, we were able to document that more than half had no external visible injury. Strangled women with no external visible injury. I was just talking yesterday to a pathologist in Indiana who's a dear friend. He had nearly 40% of his strangulation homicides where people were strangled to death had no external visible injury. So if you can strangle somebody to death with no external visible injury, you can obviously strangle them almost to death with no external visible injury. So yeah, strangulation is one of those crimes, depending on the surface area that the pressure is applied upon, that you may or may not have external injury. Maybe I'll have scratches on my arm, or they try to bite me to try to get me to stop. Maybe I'll have the injuries. That is, the offender will have the injuries, but not the victim. So this dynamic has fooled law enforcement a lot over the years. I remember as a prosecutor in San Diego, I'd get a case and it would say the victim, you know, was punched and kicked and choked and she had a black eye. And I would get really excited about a black eye because it's shiny and it's, they, they take a picture of it and now I've got a black eye. And I would think the most important thing in my case was a black eye because the officer would say, you know, I looked at her neck and she had no visible injuries on her neck. So I think, well, that doesn't really matter very much. And it turns out that the black eye just means he's an asshole. The choking means he's a killer they're not the same. I'm assuming that's part of your training. You probably go through a list of questions that law enforcement officers should be asking specifically about choking or strangling. Yeah, we have great resources, by the way. We have a website called strangulationtraininginstitute.com and you can go to strangulationtraininginstitute.com all spelled out. And we have a free 30-minute course for police officers to take uh, where they can go through a quiz at the end and see if they've gotten the basics of near and non-fatal strangulation cases. We have a whole resource library where everything is free. We do training for the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice and prosecutors and law enforcement all over America. So there's a lot of great information that we provide now to law enforcement about all of this. Well, I'll definitely make sure that we link to all that information. I did write an article for Psychology Today about strangulation and about the impact or the implications for that in terms of looking at a lethality assessment. And I have to, to tell you that I got several comments, and I know that these are things you've probably heard over and over again. And some of the comments said things like, you know, if somebody is being battered or somebody's being abused, they should just leave. And you know, maybe you have a better answer to that question in terms of how complicated that is. How do we help people understand how complicated these relationships are? Yeah, it really is an interesting journey that the culture continues to to say that. That's the go-to for most people as they learn about intimate partner violence, domestic violence, is why doesn't she just leave? It's so bad. What's Why does she stay with him? I quite frankly, after 35 years in this field, I am so amazed that women ever leave, that they're ever able to get away. I'm so proud of survivors that eventually navigate this. When you're living in an abusive relationship, uh, we hear survivors say this all the time. I felt like I was in more danger if I left than if I stayed. And we now know in our published research, and I've written 10 books over the last 11 years on domestic violence-related issues, 
victims that leave their offender are more likely to die than victims that stay with their offender. So when the victim says, I'm scared to death of him and I'm staying with him, we say she's crazy. And we now know based on the research that she's actually telling the truth. She's actually in more danger very often leaving, which totally makes sense. 75% of the women killed last year in the United States in domestic violence homicides were killed after they left the relationship. Not when they stayed, when they tried to get away, when they got a restraining order, when they said, I'm done with you. I don't deserve this. I'm not taking it anymore. I'm taking the kids and I'm leaving. That's when she's most likely to die. And in fact, the greatest acceleration of violence is in those three months right after separation. That's when he tries to reassert his power and control over the victim. So I am amazed that survivors are able to leave at all and so proud of them when they do. Uh, but in all my work over the years, I've just assumed victims are very likely to stay. And uh, we know in most of the research, the victims do try to leave over and over, but it makes it very difficult when they have children together. And he says, you leave me, you're never seeing the kids again, I'll get full custody. And we watch what happens in the family courts of this country when perpetrators do in fact get 50-50 custody, or and sometimes even get more than 50-50 custody when in fact they're the abusers. So it is not so simple uh, for people that uh, have not been through this to understand it. But the truth is, it's hard to get out of an abusive relationship, particularly with all the complex emotional, financial, economic, and lethal dynamics playing themselves out. Often does domestic violence spill over to the children? Well, I often say in America, we raise our criminals at home because you'll be hard pressed to find a perpetrator of domestic violence who didn't grow up in a domestic violence home where they learned it, where they experienced trauma and violence and abuse as a child. And in our current research, it's really interesting. We're finding high levels of what's called polyvictimization in the victims that are coming to us, that they themselves have experienced other kinds of trauma and violence as well in their lives. And that's not a victim-blaming statement because people that choose to use violence have to answer for their own choices. But it does make sense to me that if you've grown up in a home where you think violence is normative, or if you've experienced lots of abuse and oppression in your life, that a predator is more likely to find you and you're more likely to end up in this kind of power and control dynamic of an unhealthy relationship. So it's a, it's a very interesting journey. I've written two books about the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Dr. Vincent Felitti, who's the co-author of the ACEs study about childhood trauma, wrote the foreword in my first book called Sharing for the Children. And without a doubt, what goes on in childhood does shape, particularly offenders later in life. I, I don't think you're ever going to find a cop killer or a mass shooter that grew up in a healthy, functional home. It's not an excuse. It's just an explanation for where you know, I, I completely agree with that. And one of the challenges, I think, uh, for me as a psychologist is you do see, I mean, I've seen plenty of children who are traumatized. I've seen domestic violence victims who've told me, you know, I was willing to stay until my son began getting in between my husband and I mm -hmm. and trying to defend me. And then I was afraid he was going to end up getting hurt or killed as an impetus for leaving. So I know that domestic violence impacts children either directly or indirectly. I think what I struggle with and would love your thoughts on is you have these traumatized children, either they were being directly abused by a situation in the home or they're indirectly exposed to this violence by seeing it happen to a parent. 
what can we do in terms of getting these children and helping them process this and deal with this and get over this before the cycle repeats itself? Yeah, the impact of child abuse and domestic violence on kids is probably one of the great passions of my life. When we started doing this work, I really viewed this as very much those families and those people. And in the early years, I was pretty distanced from it. And it got started to get very personal when my wife and I got married and we started having children and I started processing how I had been raised, the violence my father had used in the name of discipline with me and with my siblings. Started learning more about my family, found out that I had two of my dad's brothers who had died by suicide after growing up in a very violent and abusive home where my grandfather abused both of his wives and abused all eight of his children. This was my family too, a white middle-class family from Seattle, Washington. This wasn't just those people, those women, those families. It was my family too. And once that became personal to me and once I was willing to really be honest uh, about it, I had to do business with the fact that I had internalized anger and rage. When you know kids that grow up in abusive homes, you internalize it very often, very young. And I had to process that, ended up going to counseling and really trying to figure it out. By the grace of God, I've I've never, I never even spanked my children. It was too dangerous for me to use physical discipline with my children based on what had happened to me as a child. So I never, of course, have used violence of any kind against a woman. I had to make the choice that I was going to break that cycle in my own life, in the life of, of my children. And so I did, but the, the impact on children became very personal. So when we opened the San Diego Family Justice Center in 2002, the first 25 agency collaborative of any kind in America addressing domestic violence, we developed a camping program. I had grown up at a Christian camp in the Santa Cruz Mountains where my dad was the camp director. Um, and I just felt like getting kids into nature and helping kids get their childhood back could be magic uh, for them. And sure enough, that camping program we started in San Diego in 2003 is now in 25 states. And we have realized that if we can increase hope in kids' lives and resiliency, that they can overcome that trauma, that that pain does not become their destiny, that trauma does not become their future. And so for me, that's what it's all about, is helping kids realize that, yes, the reactions they're having, the way they feel, what they struggle with is all normal. Really bad things have happened to them, and these are normal reactions, but they get to make different choices. And so for me, that's my current passion. I have become obsessed with the science of hope and how you can increase hope in adults and children. So we measure now hope and resiliency and gratitude and a whole series of strength-based kind of uh, psychological traits. And as we measure those things and see them rise in kids that have been exposed to violence and abuse, sure enough, those kids do so much better in life. That adverse childhood experiences score of 10 or 9 or 8 doesn't have to be a destiny. Hurt people hurt people. And if we don't help hurt people process what they've been through, they're going to repeat that cycle. The good news about our Camp Hope program, by the way, is Uh, In our longitudinal study in San Diego right now, we're four years in to a group of kids from Imperial and San Diego County who came out of domestic violence homes who are um, in our program. 
We have a 100% college enrollment rate with those kids, 100% graduation rate from college with those kids, and amazing outcomes. Kids that are going to a camping program every summer and then in a year-round mentoring program every month. And sure enough, uh, the destiny's changing. We can do it. That's so impressive and so exciting to hear. What about interventions for adult perpetrators? Because I have to tell you, and you know, you're talking to a psychologist and I am probably the eternal optimist. Um, I like to think that I don't give up on anybody. <laughs> and so it is disheartening to me to see some of the statistics. And, and I just refuse to believe that it is impossible for an adult perpetrator, an adult batterer to change his or her behavior. Do we know anything about successful programs for adult men who batter? Batterers programs in general, programs working with men, don't have very impressive results just about anywhere in the country. But I will say, and I've written a fair amount on this, there are a lot of programs that are still successful in that. When you look at some offender reentry programs that really wrap people coming out of jail and prison in supportive services and mental health support and parenting support and not just a place to live and a job, but really community, welcoming them into community. I do believe that there can be redemption and there can be restoration. And I've seen it in the lives of men. Many years ago, I prosecuted a domestic violence case in San Diego. This guy was, I think he was 22 years old at the time. He had badly beaten his live-in girlfriend, and I prosecuted as a felony domestic violence case, and I was going to send him to prison. He pled guilty, and we were at sentencing hearing, and he, he didn't speak at first. His defense attorney said he didn't want to talk, and so I made my pitch for three years in prison in the case. Then the defense attorney said, you know, it's his girlfriend, and she didn't even want to press charges, so why, why is this a big deal? And then Jaime, the, the defendant, he said, I'd like to speak, judge. And of course, defense attorneys never like it when their clients want to talk. It usually ends up bad for them. So the defense attorney said, no, no, you don't want to speak. And he said, no, I want to speak. And he stood up and he wept in front of the judge. And I've seen lots of batterers weep and cry. But he said this. He said, I deserve to go to prison for what I did to the woman that I loved. And our relationship is over because of the choices that I made. She will have to deal with this for a long time in her life. So I deserve to go to prison, judge. But before I go to prison, I just want to tell you what my home was like growing up. And he proceeded to describe a beating when he was about five years old, sitting in his mother's lap when his father attacked his mother. And he ended up on the floor. She ended up badly beaten. He got hit too. And he was weeping the whole time. And he finished and he said, so he said, it's not an excuse for what I did. I just wanted you to know who, who I am and where I came from. And he sat down and uh, I didn't send him to prison. I changed my recommendation. And I thought, this is exactly what men should be doing. He took responsibility. Did he deserve to be punished? He did. But he took responsibility for his violence. And he said, I, I want to change. And uh, fast forward, he didn't go to prison, by the way. He went to county jail. He did spend a year in jail. And I didn't see him again. Life went on for me. He went to a batter's intervention program that was then run by a woman named Barbara Reeb at the YWCA in San Diego. Fast forward, I'm the elected city attorney of San Diego. We start Camp Hope. And I'm speaking at a community forum about Camp Hope. 
And at the end of the forum, a man in the back of the room starts coming toward me, beat red in the face. And, you know, I've prosecuted so many guys in my career as a prosecutor. You never know when I'm going to end up in a ditch somewhere. But here's this guy coming at me. I don't recognize him. I don't know who he is. He's coming at me fast. And I kind of stepped back and he came up to me. And the first words out of his mouth were, do you remember me? Which, of course, I didn't. And he said, you're the first man that ever believed in me. And I still didn't have any idea who he was. And he said his name. He said, you didn't send me to prison when I deserved to go to prison. You put me in the county jail and sent me to a men's group after that. And he said, I figured out my life and I took responsibility and I learned how to navigate through my rage and anger. And he said, I'm now 39 years old. And he said, I have never hit a woman again. He said, I'm also not in a relationship because I don't think I'm at a place where I should be with women alone. So I'm navigating as best I can, but I want you to know that I was just selected as labor leader of the year in Southern California. He now runs one of the largest unions in Southern California. And he said, if you had sent me to prison, I never would have had the career that I have. You gave me a pathway to redemption. And he said, I will be forever grateful. And he helped us start Camp Hope in San Diego. So yes, I believe in redemption. And I believe that you've got to give men a real pathway to realize this is why I'm the way I am. This is where it came from. And now I need help to make different choices in my life to be a different human being. And he's still a friend of mine to this very day. It's a really great story. And I think it shows just how complicated it is. I mean, it is important. I totally agree with you. I've seen many victims of domestic violence. It is extremely important to make sure that they're safe and hold perpetrators accountable. And at the same time, I think it is important to realize that not every person who has hit someone is the same. And that kind of leads me into this whole issue of where we are now with the coronavirus and COVID-19 and families being at home. And, you know, I want to talk about, first of all, you know, women who are already in a domestic violence situation and what they can and should be doing to make sure they're safe as much as possible. And also the possibility that there may be situations at home where there hasn't been a history of domestic violence and the stress of, you know, what's going on right now might escalate things. Yeah, both of those situations, of course, we're seeing all over the United States. We're seeing situations where men who have a history of violence and abuse and women who have been previously victimized by their partners are now home without a job, without the ability to pay the bills, perhaps even with kids adding even more kind of stress to that home environment. And we're seeing significant levels of violence coming out of that. I was just consulting with an advocate Friday, last Friday, on a case uh, in New Jersey uh, where this woman was strangled four times in one day by her husband in the house. And she didn't know what to do. He strangled her almost to unconsciousness. The second time he took her out, she literally was out for some period of time, unconscious, four times. I mean, I guarantee you she likely suffered brain damage during that assault. And she doesn't even realize it. Eventually, he apparently went out 
and she called uh, the hotline at this family justice center in New Jersey and was talking to them. And she didn't want to leave because he had told her, if you leave, you know, you're going to get COVID-19. And if you leave, I'm not letting you come back because then you'll expose the kids. I mean, he's gaslighting. He's playing every card with her while he's assaulting her with deadly force in that home in the middle of COVID-19. So there's that kind of a situation. Then there certainly is the situation where you have maybe a relationship that might not be the healthiest to begin with. And now you've got this increased stress, maybe introduction of more alcohol. Alcohol doesn't cause domestic violence, but it certainly does increase violence and it certainly does increase injury out of violence. And so you've got these kind of toxic force multipliers going on. And we're, we're hearing those kind of calls. I, the national hotline, national domestic violence hotline, which we partner with, they've been talking about the fact that they're getting these new calls from survivors who've never experienced violence, but now this kind of rage is playing out. So both of those things are true. The thing that concerns me the most is we track murder suicides in America And in the last uh, three weeks, we've had the highest number of domestic violence-related murder-suicides that we've seen in recorded history in certainly more than a decade that we've been tracking this. So typically in America, in a given week, you'll have 11 murder-suicides on average. And out of those 11 murder-suicides, a little over half of them will be domestic violence-related. In the last two weeks, we've had 44 murder suicides and 95% of them have been domestic violence murder suicides and all the killers are men and all of the victims are women and children so we see this rising level not only of domestic violence but we also see this rising level of the types of violence including lethal violence uh, at rates we haven't seen ever didn't see it in MERS didn't see it in H1N1 didn't see it during uh, the great recession in 2008 2000 11 period. So it's very concerning. And women thinking, I've got to stay home because I'm quarantined, or I've got to stay at home order, when in fact, the stay at home order makes her, puts her in more danger than perhaps anything else that's ever happened to her. So what should that person do? Well, for sure, you've got to talk, you've got to call somebody, you've got to reach out for help, however it's safe, whether it's calling the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE, whether it's reaching out to a local family justice center, if you already have a relationship or a local domestic violence shelter, uh, you've got to talk to somebody. If you've got access to a counselor or a therapist, you've got to find a safe place to communicate. That's got to be the beginning. This, This will not stop without disclosure, without intervention. Secrecy and is not going to solve this problem and telling no one is not gonna make it go away. Even if he says, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm not gonna do that again. We all know that's not true. So you've gotta, for starters, reach out for help. The second part is just the knowledge to know there are a lot of resources out there. Every one of our family justice centers in America, we've got family justice centers now in 42 states, we're all open. They're not all in-person services, but we're, we're online. We're on Zoom. We're on Doxy. We're on uh, WebEx. 
we're on blue jeans. We're on all kinds of platforms that are being used to communicate with survivors. We're doing counseling over the phone. We're doing advocacy over the phone. If it's a really dangerous situation, we've got cops and prosecutors still working 24 seven. We're finding that safety planning with women is particularly important right now because jails and prisons aren't wanting to keep guys. So there's this pressure against arresting people for domestic violence in the middle of COVID-19. So if we can't get him in jail or keep him in jail, we got to be much more aggressive in plan coming up with a safety plan on how victims of domestic violence are going to get safe and keep their children safe. And that may mean going to a motel. We're using motels right now all over the country to house battered women uh, to get away from their abusers. And you are not required to stay home in a lockdown if you are a victim of domestic violence. Stay, stay home, stay safe is not for victims of domestic violence. We're going to take a quick break. This is Dr. Joni Johnston. Our guest today is Casey Gwynn, and our topic today is domestic violence under quarantine. We'll be right back. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep, but it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to Thread of Evidence. Now, let's say, Casey, that I am a friend of someone that I know is in a domestic violence situation. Should my interactions with that person be different in the current situation? So I think specifically what I'm asking is, I know, you know, just about anything that you read, anything that I know, I'll say, you know, you can't talk somebody to end a leaving. You need to be supportive. You need to help that person, be a resource to that person. But I, I think what I'm wondering is, should I be more proactive in terms of checking in on that person, given the situation? I think the answer is yes, but you have to be careful and make sure that the, that the person wants to be contacted and is, is safe to be contacted. And if you're going to do that, you have to make sure that you have a code word so that if she needs to say, I can't talk right now, there's a code for that. If she needs to say, can you please call the police? You have a code for that. We're seeing code word strategies being used by advocates all over the country. We have had some family justice centers and domestic violence agencies doing what we call pretext calls where they're calling to check on a victim and then saying, you know, I'm calling from the health department and the events that he answers the phone, we're calling to check on, you know, welfare of people in this community. If he answers the phone, instead of just calling and asking for her, if it's not safe for her to talk, for example. So there's a lot of safety planning, even that goes into those kind of calls. But I still think that the five things that I have said for 30 years to say to victims in need is the same today. And those five things are one, uh, I'm afraid for your safety. 
Number two, I'm afraid for the safety of your children if she has children. Number three, there's help available if you need it. Uh, number four, you don't deserve to be treated like this. And number five, I will be here for you whenever you need me. And those five things to me are still as vital and appropriate today as they were six months ago, and they will be six months from now. If we try to intervene and take away the choices from a survivor, even if it's benevolent, we're doing the same thing to her that her abuser is doing to her, robbing her of agency, the ability to make her own choices, the ability to set her own goals. And amazingly, in our research on hope, you know, hope is the belief that your future can be better than your past and that you play a role in making it so by the goals you set and the pathways you pursue to achieve your goals. She needs to be able to set her own goals. And if her goal today is I'm just going to talk to a friend, that's my only goal, and be able to talk privately, then that's a great goal to achieve in a day. If the goal is to get to a motel within the next week, then we need to help her do that. But when talking to somebody, it's always better uh, if we get her into the hands of somebody who's a professional who's trained in this, whether that's a therapist or an advocate, so often just a friend may not know what to do. And you, what you may mean for good, like, hey, you got to get out of there. Why are you staying with him? Suddenly, we're creating shame in the middle of trying to be supportive and encouraging, like this is somehow her fault. Do you know what this is doing to your kids? Somehow we're we're trying to do a good thing, but we're doing it in a way that's actually re-victimizing her if we don't know what we're doing or what, what should be said or what she needs to hear. So it's a tricky issue. I still think we go with, uh, I'm here for you, and I want you to make the choices that you're able to make to be as safe as you can be and so your kids can be as safe as they can be. Yes, yeah, interesting. You're talking about some of the pretext calls or some of the creative ways. I think victims are trying to be safe. I was talking to a friend of mine whose neighbor has been in a domestic violence situation and they actually had an arrangement where she would pull her curtains a certain way. Mm. And that was kind of a signal to her neighbor that if she ever moved them maybe to the left or whatever, that was a clear sign that she needed some kind of help. Wow. So I think people are still trying to be safe and trying to figure out in kind of unusual and creative ways how to That's communicate great. with people who need their help. You mentioned restraining orders earlier in our talk, and I just wanted to get your take on those. I know every situation is different, but I've heard so many mixed things about restraining orders. Well, restraining orders are really just a tool. You know, they're certainly not safety in and of themselves, and they, in fact, can create more danger in the placement of a restraining order in a particular situation. But they are a tool for law enforcement. It's much easier for law enforcement to deal with a situation when somebody calls and says, hey, my husband's assaulting me, and they show up there, and she's got a restraining order against him, and he's in the house it's not a he said, she said. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether he assaulted her. He's not supposed to be there. So it, it becomes an easy tool for law enforcement to say, hey, you're, you're under arrest because you're violating a court order. So restraining orders can be a tool. But I will tell you that when victims can go directly to a courthouse, or even now we're starting to see more and more electronic filing systems be developed across the country during the pandemic, where victims can apply for restraining orders and get them online or electronically, 
If they do that without the help of an advocate or a domestic violence agency or a family justice center, I am very concerned about that because as soon, let's say she goes to the courthouse or she files and gets her restraining order. As soon as she gets that restraining order, the level of danger has gone up, not down. She is now in more danger, not less danger, because separation in a power and control relationship creates danger and it increases lethality. That goes right back to what I said earlier. Every year, 75% of the women killed in this country in domestic violence homicides are killed at the time of separation or after, not while they're still with their abuser, when they try to get away. So restraining orders are a tool, but they're just a piece of paper. And a psychopath or a sociopath or somebody who is bent on assaulting or hurting somebody is not going to be stopped by a piece of paper. So our advice is always work with an advocacy agency, work with a family justice center, uh, work, just don't say to a victim willy nilly, hey, you should go get a restraining order and get him kicked out, particularly now when the options for everybody are so complex in leaving an abusive home. So carefully, carefully step through that journey and make sure that victims have advocates working with them that are specially trained in domestic violence. Because yes, restraining orders can be a very powerful tool and they can certainly be a tool that will cause law enforcement to be able to enforce the law against an abuser. On the other hand, uh, they can create more danger. Are there certain commonalities that you see in women who do successfully leave? And if so, what are they? I would say that there probably are factors that we have seen that are pretty clear. Those that get away end up with a support system around them. They somehow end up with people that are supporting them, believing in them, caring for them. You know, hope is never alone. So you can't navigate this journey by yourself. You say, well, I'm just going to get out by myself with my kids and we'll be fine. Uh, most women in that situation end up going back. Uh, they've got to have supportive family around them. If they don't have family, they've got to have friends or a social group that cares about them, that invests in them. And, and likewise, if, if you see somebody who's really successfully navigated out of this, they've ended up in a community of care and support, not just for the few minutes of departure or a few people helping them when they try to get away, but in the long haul. We always say that our calling with survivors is to create community even long after the crisis. And survivors that do the best are those who aren't lonely anymore. And they, they're not leaving an abusive relationship to nothing. They're leaving an abusive relationship to new relationships or to relationships they may have lost in the past or to a new community of support, whether it's a family justice center or a community-based agency. Without a doubt, that's the case that you can't do this alone. So, so they're moving towards something, it, it sounds like. Yes. They're not just away from something, they're moving towards something as well. And it can't just be what we call negative goaling. So low hope people, people that have really been robbed of hope in life, and certainly domestic violence victims are in that category where they, are, they don't get to set their own goals in their life. They don't get to identify their own pathways to their goals. They get robbed of hope. The answer to that is not, okay, I'm just going to stay away from him. Now, that's a negative goal. A positive goal or an affirming goal would be, I'm going to surround myself with people that respect me and treat me with honor. 
um, and dignity. That would be a positive goal. Not just, I'm going to stay away from him, or I'm not going to spend the weekend with him anymore. That's a negative goal. And negative goaling never works very well in life. I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm not going to hit my wife anymore. Those are negative goals. When even batters groups, the best batters groups have men setting positive goals. I'm going to treat my partner this next week with respect and honor and dignity and equality for seven days. That's my first goal. Seven days or 24 hours. I'm not going to say an abusive word to my partner. That's a negative goal. But a positive goal would be I'm going to say words of kindness and and love and respect to my partner. That would be a positive goal. So this notion of goaling uh, in the science and in our research is really important. It's why the best therapists, it's why the best case managers in social work are always those who help people set positive goals and not negative goals. You were really the impetus for this Family Justice Center movement. And I want you can tell us about that. It really was an amazing journey. You know, we we started prosecuting domestic violence cases pretty aggressively in the 1980s in San Diego. And we were just figuring out how to win these cases, how to let survivors choose whether or not they wanted to participate. By the 1990s, we kind of figured out that prosecution was fine, but survivors needed community. They needed wraparound services. Cops couldn't do it alone. Prosecutors couldn't do it alone. Advocates couldn't do it alone. So we started dreaming of this idea of putting all the services under one roof. That eventually became, in 2002, the San Diego Family Justice Center, 25 agencies, 120 professionals, 120 volunteers on any given day. Domestic violence homicides in San Diego dropped 90% in the city of San Diego between 1985 and 2008 in that journey. But after we opened the Family Justice Center, I didn't think it was relevant to any place else in the world. It was just our thing. We, were, we, we built relationships with our Rape Crisis Center, the Center for Community Solutions, with the YWCA, which was our primary domestic violence agency in the city of San Diego. And we were just working together. But then after we opened, I went on Oprah in January of 03, and I was on Oprah for two days. And Oprah endorsed the Family Justice Center. And within four months, I was at the White House talking to Laura Bush and her chief of staff and uh, Margaret Spelling, the domestic policy advisor to George W. Bush. By October of 03, President Bush created a federal initiative and asked me to run it to oversee the creation of more family justice centers like what we had done in San Diego. We then had to figure out how to replicate it. So we did. Uh, And today we have family justice centers in 42 states and 25 countries all built around the simple concept that victims should be able to come one place for everything they need. We've got 24 centers across the state of California now, and it's been an amazing thing to see what can happen when you truly collaborate, when everybody works together and a woman can come one place. And we serve men too. We serve male victims, both heterosexual victims and gay victims. Uh, About 15% of the clients of any given family justice center are usually men, about 85% are women. About half the men are gay men and about half the men are uh, straight men who have been victimized by a woman in an abusive relationship. Those numbers are much smaller than they are for women, obviously. But we serve them all. And now we've started all these programs for kids within family justice centers, including our camping and mentoring program and children's counseling and art programs. Uh, They look different everywhere. The San Diego Family Justice Center today doesn't look anything like the centers in each borough of New York City. Centers in a, a tribal community in Bemidji, Minnesota don't look at all like the centers in Antwerp, Belgium. But we're figuring out what the power of we can look like so that survival 
survivors aren't just coming to some isolated single agency in a secret location. They're actually coming to a wraparound services model where they can find lots of things that they need in one place. So Casey, thank you so much for taking the time to be on our show. It was just really enlightening and you gave us a lot of information. This is Dr. Joni Johnston. You've been listening to Threat of Evidence and see you next time.